welcome back for another episode of Public Problems. In this episode, I speak with Ryan Crocker about terrorism in the Middle East, how it has changed over time, and what are some useful strategies for the U.S. to press back against tactics of terrorism. But before we get to that, I wanted to take a moment and introduce to you the folks helping me publish this podcast. I'm going to let these three wonderful people introduce themselves and mention what it is that they do to help with the podcast. So, if you would, please. Hello, I'm Lila Kiyashvili, and I have helped with developing the structure of the podcast, created framework for publishing process, and I'm currently working on the webpage for it. Thanks. My name is Meg Lubavani, and I have worked on gathering the sources cited and mentioned during the podcast, as well as preparing summaries for the talks. Thanks, Maggie. Howdy, my name is Hazik Masood, uh, and I'm working as a graduate assistant researcher for Dr. Bullock. Uh, I've primarily been associated with the production and editing of the lovely podcast that you're hearing, and I hope you continue to enjoy them. Thank you all so much. Um, turning back to the episode, first, uh, let me apologize for the audio quality of the interview. Uh, given that Ryan is at Princeton, we needed to conduct the interview using a video conference call. We're still working on how to best capture the audio when the conversation is over a video call. So the, the audio quality is a little less than ideal. But we decided the conversation was important enough to publish it anyways. So bear with us on uh, the quality of the audio. There are a few, if any, English speakers from Western culture that understand the complexities of the various actors in the Middle East, as well as Ryan Crocker. In this episode, he lays out the seriousness of addressing the root causes of terrorism and how this is a battle that can cannot be won with mixtures of brute force and retrenchment from the world stage but rather with engagement. The consequences of both an over-reliance on direct military intervention is becoming more and more evident, and the consequences of retrenchment and ceding the U.S.'s role on the international stage is likely to be very disruptive for the relatively peaceful post-World War II order. With all of this in mind, here's my conversation with Ryan Crocker. Welcome. Today I'm speaking with Ryan Crocker. Ryan is a diplomat in residence at Princeton University, currently on leave from Texas A&M. Uh, Ryan has a long and storied life of public service. He has served as U.S. Ambassador to Lebanon, Kuwait, Syria, Pakistan, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He is also the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, Ryan was also my first boss after graduate school as the Dean of the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. So thanks for giving me my first job, Ryan. Um, uh, so uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the rise of ISIS. Ryan was one of the earliest voices warning about the rise of the Islamic State, uh, which will be the topic for today. So again, Ryan, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Happy to do it. So let's start with a little bit maybe of historical context. Um, you've spent your career working, a lot of your career working in the Middle East, and many, uh, many of the actors in that region before the so-called war on terror began. Uh, in fact, I believe you were in, the, in Kuwait in the mid-1990s. Maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about the rise of political Islamism in this region and terror tactics in the region and abroad. What are, what are kind of the roots of this ideology and, and tactics in your experience? I, I think it's important to, uh, to take a long view of these things. We, particularly we Americans, tend to get caught up in the moment uh, without reaching back to see how this moment came about. 
to take the subject of terrorism. I'm, I'm old enough to remember another era of, um, uh, of terrorism in the Middle East. Uh, as you note, I was an ambassador six times. In three of those posts, a predecessor of mine as an ambassador, as the American ambassador, was assassinated. Um, Beirut was my first embassy. Uh, Frank Malloy, a predecessor of mine as an ambassador, was um, assassinated uh, in Beirut. Was he assassinated by Islamic terrorists? No, he was assassinated by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Um, uh, was that an Islamist group? Not quite to the extent that they had an ideology. It was the antithesis. It was a communist organization. Mm -hmm. uh, well, at least with their uh, leader, some uh, bearded Muslim radical, their leader was George Habash, a Palestinian Christian. So, mm -hmm. you know, as we jump off the deep end of the pool here, uh, saying it's always been there, um, Islam equals terrorism and so forth, you know, not exactly. And that takes us to the point. It, it, terror is a tactic. It's a, uh, it's a way of fighting. It, it is not in itself um, uh, a, a philosophy or school of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say one other thing in, in terms of, of causes and roots. Uh, it's, um, it's about 100 years now since the founding of the modern Middle East in the uh, wake of World War I, the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and so as we look back at those 100 years, you see a lot of isms, imperialism, colonialism, monarchism in the central states like uh, Iraq and Egypt, um, Arab nationalism, Nasserism, Arab socialism, Baathism, in, uh, in Iraq and Syria, uh, and just outright authoritarianism. What all of these isms have in common over 100 years, with few exceptions, is a failure to govern, a failure to provide security, services, and, and prosperity to its citizens. One after another, all of those isms have failed. Mm -hmm. Now we are into Islamism. Mm -hmm. uh, as expressed by uh, uh, Islamic State and Al-Qaeda among Sunnis, uh, uh, Hezbollah and the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq, uh, uh, for the Shia, um, we are also seeing yet another failure. Islamic State, they got it. They, they tried to provide services at the beginning. Uh, but I think they were under too much pressure and their ideology kind of overwhelmed them. So that ism is going to fail too. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it will solve nothing. Uh, uh, Islamism uh, embodied in Islamic State is, uh, again, it's a symptom. It's not a cause. Uh, the underlying causes of failure of governance are still there. So just as Islamic State emerged as effectively al-Qaeda 2.0, uh, something else will emerge behind Islamic State. I don't know what it is. 
I know we're not going to like it. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, I appreciate you putting that in context. That was, I just spoke with uh, Greg Galls, um, who you know quite well, um, and he was highlighting the role that the sort of um, the U.S. Uh, being involved in the Middle East was initially sort of following post-World War II more about combating communism and kind of talked about the history of communism in the region. And that was kind of the first big issue before um, Islamism kind of became the big big issue in the region. Um, so uh, sort of started hitting on some of the questions I had. The next thing I wanted to talk on, um, my, sort of one of my first exposures to you talking about the Islamic State uh, was a PBS documentary called Losing Iraq. Um, and as I think I mentioned to you before, I actually use that documentary in our foundations course here at the Bush School. Uh, but it's kind of honing in on the Islamic State a little bit. Could you describe um, the rise of the Islamic State and how it sort of replaced Al-Qaeda? I know you just now mentioned and in the past have mentioned that it's kind of Al-Qaeda 2.0. So how did it shift from Al-Qaeda being the main one of the main concerns in this region to Islamic State? And kind of what do you mean by it being 2.0? Uh, in well, to 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 go back to the uh, the origins, Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, was led by a Jordanian Abu Musab al Zarqawi uh, until we were finally able to kill him in 2006. Uh, although nominally a an Al Qaeda leader, uh, it, it was quite clear uh, in the time before 2006 that he was pretty sharply at odds with um, uh, Al-Qaeda Central in the Afghan-Pakistan uh, border area. Uh, we, we did a capture one communication, um, a, a message uh, to him from Ayman al-Zawahri, then the deputy, now the leader of Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, remonstrating that um, uh, he was following policies and tactics that were not uh, sanctioned by um, uh, the Al-Qaeda Osama bin Laden. So uh, there was dissonance really right right from the beginning. And uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, of course, is, is the heir to that dissension. Um, he is not the one who uh, coined the Islamic State, but of course he has since emerged as its um, uh, most dynamic leader. Uh, what's the difference? Well, look, I, I am not uh, uh, a, a theologian on any revealed religion, certainly not on Islam, but uh, now one of the uh, uh, key points of, of dissension was the timing and the nature of the caliphate. Uh, for uh, Al-Qaeda, the, the caliphate would be uh, the seal at the end of days. Um, all the ground had to be carefully prepared, uh, and only then would the caliphate come into being. For Islamic State and its theoreticians, the caliphate came first. Uh, control of territory was essential to, to the mission of the state. Uh, so a, a fairly profound difference of opinion uh, and I would imagine that some in Al-Qaeda's caves are chuckling at the uh, series of defeats mm -hmm. that Islamic State is, is enduring to say, we told you so. Um, but, that, but that's the nature of it. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, I, I think the, um, uh, the first declaration of 
an Islamic state. It goes back, oh, at least till to 2010. In other words, well before they ever emerged as a uh, uh, as a force in the Syrian civil war and then back in Iraq. And, and sort of hitting on that main difference, and you alluded to this a moment ago, but how, how did they actually, I mean, what did the state at its height, I, I, uh, they've lost a lot of territory now, and it's essentially um, much smaller now, as I understand it, but what did it, like, at the height of the actual having physical land, what did what did their state look like? I mean, you mentioned they tried to provide services. What, how did, what did that governance process look like, to your knowledge? Well, our knowledge is... Uh is very fragmentary and we, we really have to be careful not to assume we know more than we do about the uh, inner, inner workings of the Islamic State. Uh, you may recall a, a CNN segment uh, some, some years back now uh, done by a German photojournalist who was actually uh, invited uh, into Mosul uh, after the um, Islamic State had taken control there in the summer of 2014. It was a fairly extraordinary um, piece uh, as Islamic State was at pains to project themselves uh, again as, as a state. Uh, uh, he was shown Islamic State police cars um, uh, whose, whose officers were um, handing out speeding tickets. Uh, there, there are accounts from Syria of um, Islamic State when it moved into territory where NGOs might be operating, uh, particularly on the health sector. They, they would visit a clinic and ask the NGO, how does it work? Uh, how do you staff it? Where do you get your medicines? Uh, as they, they clearly were seeking to be able to take over and run these facilities on their own. Uh, so again, they, I, they got the governance thing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they provided a, obviously a very harsh justice, uh, but according to the accounts I have seen in those early periods, uh, it was also predictable. Uh, if you did this, you're going to get that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and again, for those who have, who had suffered under the, uh, the arbitrary, often arbitrary tyranny of the Assad regime in Syria, or the um, uh, succession of governments post-2003 in Iraq, uh, that was seen as a good thing. Mm -hmm. But again, I think as the military pressure on them increased um, as uh, those pressures caused a refocus and whatnot. Uh, we 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 saw that that governance area uh, effort uh, recede and I think eventually dissipate completely. And so that's a nice transition into kind of what is the current state of ISIS. I know that uh, ISIS has, has been. Uh, pushed out of Mosul in the Battle of Mosul that took quite some time. I followed that actually along in Vice, um, but uh, it's essentially dissipated now. So we're we're kind of what type of role is Islamic State playing in the on the international stage now that they've lost the bulk of their territory? Has they have they shifted their tactics? Have they kind of gone into hiding? What's the where where does it stand now? Well, 
we are seeing the slow but steady progression of a conclusive military defeat for Islamic State in the areas that it physically holds. Uh, reports today are that Tel Afar uh, now has, has fallen. It was a, uh, also in Iraq, and of course, the, the next effort after Mosul itself. Uh, what will they do next? Uh, well, I think they will revert to uh, you know, where they were before. But, uh, they, uh, they will go underground, uh, and they will bide their time looking for the next opportunity. Uh, and again, these, uh, uh, these, these folks are old hands at that. Uh, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, was uh, picked up by coalition forces in Iraq in the early going, uh, imprisoned at Bukha, uh, seen as a lightweight thug and cut loose. Uh, so he, he knows how to go underground. Mm -hmm. and. Um, he and and the others will will go there again. It's important to to note. I was ambassador to Iraq 2007-2009 during the surge and and its consolidation, uh, and uh, eliminating Al Qaeda in Iraq was a major priority. Um, but we never could quite do it. Um, there were little pockets in Mosul and up the Euphrates River Valley. Uh, that uh, we, we just could not close out. Why? Because the um, Sunni population of Mosul uh, did not see Al-Qaeda necessarily as the worst thing out there. Mm -hmm. um, the worst thing out there were the Shia militias. Um, and that, sadly, not only has not been reversed, it's been accelerated, as we see the so-called popular mobilization units uh, backed by Iran uh, all over Iraqi terrain. Uh, and these, these are the kinds of people that uh, parents would use to terrify their kids if they were behaving badly. Uh, they have got uh, huge amounts of Sunni blood on their hands and not insignificant amounts of uh, American blood. Uh, so. Uh, again, without the root causes of governance being addressed, um, these guys will hunker down uh, and emerge in some form at some time. Uh, one cannot predict in, in, in what form exactly or when, but I'll tell you, they'll be back in, in less than or until these issues of governance are, are resolved. And what, how, how do you think, um, what is the role uh, sort of you are making the decision, what is the role America can play or should or should not be playing in helping to build the governance structures if that's kind of one of the underlying issues that keep perpetuating um, this way of doing business? Well, as I say, there is uh, good news and bad news. The good news is there is uh, really some notable consistency in approach to problems like Islamic State between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Uh, the bad news is they're both getting it wrong. Um, they have both they have both defined uh, Islamic State as a military problem. 
defeat them militarily and you win. Uh, well, they're, they're not a military problem. They are the symptom of a very deep-rooted problem of governance. Uh, and as we approach this, again, as a security problem, uh, that encourages our allies on the ground to do the same. Uh, you don't got to wrestle with those awful, difficult issues of governance, just like the Americans say, let's, uh, let's kill all those bastards and you know, get on with life. Yeah. Uh, to make a difference, uh, we, we would have to re-engage in Iraq in a significant way. And by that, I don't mean militarily, I mean politically. Uh, for the Secretary of State to, for example, go out to Iraq, uh, spend days and days there, not hours, uh, talking to the political leadership, signaling that um, what happens in Iraq is essential to us, uh, laying out the case for uh, the need of effective political reform as a means of defeating extremists, again, on both sides. Um, but uh, I have not seen any indication that the Secretary of State has Baghdad on his travel schedule anytime soon. Um, and, and again, it, it's not sending in the 101st Airborne. It is sending in our top, top diplomats, making this a priority policy issue. And sadly, that's, that's simply not going to happen. One thing this, uh, the current administration um, has been focusing on sort of following major events in the news as it seems like some of the efforts have been directed more towards Afghanistan with respect to both Islamic State and the Taliban. Uh, back in, I think it was April, the U.S. military dropped the Moab uh, in Afghanistan, killing about, uh, uh, the reports were almost 100 Islamic State fighters. Um, and then last week, the Trump administration made a major policy speech on, I think, what essentially amounted to a slight troop increase, uh, levels in troops in Afghanistan, with the stated purpose of fighting terrorism. So w why the shift to Afghanistan, and what, what's going on in Afghanistan to warrant this kind of, a, this kind of attention? Well, I think it is important uh, uh, that we have this focus on Afghanistan. At the same time, I mean, we are the United States of America. We actually can do more than one thing at one time. Um, uh, to shift completely away from Iraq, uh, uh, to put emphasis on Afghanistan, I think would be a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, I, I thought the president's um, policy announcements, by and large, were sound. Uh, and in this, he is also... Um, building on things that uh, President Obama did toward the end of his administration. Most crucially, uh, what President Trump is saying is that uh, the, the American engagement in Afghanistan is not based on a calendar. It's based on conditions. Uh, and again, when, when President Obama uh, put a stop to troop withdrawals his last year in office, that was highly significant uh, because, again, it was saying the calendar is off the table. Uh, and I'm very pleased that President Trump reaffirmed that. Uh, the, the one flaw that I see in his policy toward Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, relates to Pakistan. That um, 
um, you know, we're going to get tough. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that we're going to or else them again if they don't crack down on the Taliban leadership. Uh, and I know where this comes from. It comes from our top military and uh, former military uh, officials like uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly. Um, and I, I, I get their frustration, I shared it, uh, of uh, these insurgents of whatever flavor, you know, Haqqani Network, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, uh, having safe havens in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unlike them, I actually served in Pakistan uh, three years as ambassador of four to seven. So, so here's the Pakistani narrative. Um, hey, we're glad you're back. We're glad the, the assistance is uh, flowing. We're going to take as much as we can, acquire us there. Because by the way, when are you leaving? We know that's what you do. Hmm. Uh, yeah. We, we, we Americans do not spend a lot of time on history. Well, others, others live it. Uh, in the 80s, during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, Pakistan was our most allied of allies. The, the whole anti-Soviet jihad was basically staged uh, out of Pakistan's northwest frontier. Uh, we provided the training. The Pakistanis provided the facilities and the access. The Saudis provided the funding. And it worked. But then what? Uh, once the Soviets were gone, there was nothing to unify the major Mujahideen factions. Entirely predictable that they would turn on each other with extraordinary violence, and that's exactly what they did. Um, and leaving Pakistan with this horrendous mess on their frontier. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, on the way out, uh, since we didn't need Pakistan anymore, uh, we stopped getting waivers to the Pressler Amendment. The Pressler Amendment stipulated that uh, any country pursuing a nuclear weapons program uh, would be cut off from all U.S. military or economic assistance. Well, the Pakistanis, like the Indians, had been pursuing, publicly pursuing such a weapons program since the 1970s. But we needed them, so we got waivers to that particular provision. We didn't need them anymore after 1990. We stopped getting waivers, and they got slammed with sanctions. So uh, basically what the Pakistanis are saying is, uh, are we hedging our bets with the Taliban? Did you bet your ass we're hedging our bets? Yeah. Uh, Because you're going to pull out again. Mm -hmm. And um, when you do, we don't need another mortal enemy. We got enough. So now that's the Pakistani narrative. Uh, but it is important to understand how they are influenced by what we did in the past. <laughs> so again, thanks to um, uh, President Obama, President Trump had a, an opportunity to say, not only is this um, conditions-based, uh, it means that we're not leaving. So you folks here in Pakistan, it's going to be different this time. Uh, we want to work with you. We're in this on a long-term basis. This is a strategic shift. Uh, and then to add to that, 
another thing that President Obama did. But you got to know that any Taliban leader we can find anywhere in Pakistan, we're going to nail them. Uh, we don't care if it's in Baluchistan, uh, as President Obama did with a uh, publicized uh, uh, hellfire strike on uh, the succession to Mullah Omar, uh, uh, and Mohammed Akhtar Mansour, uh, uh, or it may be in Rawalpindi. So why don't you take those two things, our Pakistani friends, go sit under a tree somewhere, um, and see if we want to have a very different strategic dialogue. Uh, that's the opportunity he missed. And again, I, uh, the advice he got, I understand where it comes from. Those leaders, past and present, that I mentioned are, are individuals I have served with. Uh, I, I hold them in the highest esteem. Um, they may understand Afghanistan pretty well, they do. They don't understand Pakistan that well, because again, there is no substitute to, for actually spending time in a place to begin to understand it. So I, I can tell you that threats to the Pakistanis absolutely will not work. Um, so we'll, we'll see where it goes, but I would um, keep my expectations under control. Yeah. One, one thing that uh, Greg mentioned when I was talking with him was that a lot of the Trump administration's approach to the Middle East broadly is is uh, difference in style, but in substance fairly similar to what the Obama administration uh, did. And one different, uh, one country he noted that the way in which things are being kind of treated differently is maybe Iran. So you mentioned Iran as a as a player in this in this region as well. And so do you do you, do you see a difference in the treatment? Uh, you know, there was the I Iran nuclear deal, and then Trump, there was some rhetoric around that, and that seems to be maybe returning to, instead of engagement, maybe uh, more combative. How do, you see, how do you see that approach to Iran? Well, I, I, I have argued uh, since the conclusion of the nuclear agreement uh, that we have to see it for what it is. Uh, it's an arms control agreement. It is not a treaty of peace and friendship. Uh, and I, I would liken it in many respects to some of the agreements that the Reagan administration reached with the uh, Soviets in the 1980s. Um, they, they certainly made the world a safer place, uh, but at the same time he was concluding them, Reagan was continuing to label the Soviet Union an evil empire um, and press them on every other front. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I argued that that is exactly what we should do, be doing with Iran. Um, uh, a, an arms control agreement that makes the region and the world a safer place, uh, that we will abide by it as long as they do, uh, but that we're going to get up in their faces everywhere else. Uh, that's Incidentally, what the Iranians are doing to us mm -hmm. um, uh, in Iraq, in Syria, uh, in Yemen, uh, they have in no way moderated their behavior. Anything they've accelerated it. So uh, those in the Obama administration that argued that uh, you know, we need to turn this into a peace in our time were uh, uh, just you know uh, beyond. Reasonable. Mm -hmm. That was not going to happen, and it hurt our relations with the Sunni Arabs badly. Uh, 
as we saw. Trump now, I think, is going too far in the other direction. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have to bear in mind that the nuclear agreement was Iran's plan B. Um, plan A was a failure in negotiations that could be blamed on us. Um, incredibly, President Trump is now giving them another chance at their plan A. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because if, 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 if we pull out of that agreement, uh, then everyone else is going to throw up their hands, um, sanctions will collapse, and the Iranians will get to do whatever they want with their nuclear program, uh, and there will be no sanctions in place to um, slow them down at all. Uh, you know, if the Obama approach on Iran was bad, thinking that they could be brought to a position of moderation, this is far worse. Um, it will make the day of um, people like Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani um, uh, that, you know, the deal will collapse. That effectively, the, uh, if what the Obama administration pursued with respect to an Iran policy was uh, dangerously illusionary, uh, thinking that uh, they were going to moderate their behavior and become a responsible world citizen again. The um, the approach of the Trump administration is, is even worse to um, uh, be the cause of a breakdown in that agreement that will be blamed on us and that will give the Iranians extraordinary benefits. So this will be the final question. Actually, we made it through our questions uh, fairly quick. Um, and we, we talked about this specifically in Iraq, but what should, so my, my idea with this podcast is that people who uh, care about these issues, but maybe don't have as access to uh, the information they need can be better informed on some of the problems going on in the world. So what, uh, you mentioned this a little bit earlier in terms of engaging in diplomacy, but in broad terms of dealing with issues in this region, and I, I, and I can't paint too broad of a paintbrush, but what would you be, what would you encourage sort of citizens to encourage the leaders to do? Is it, is it uh, I mean, definitely a step away, it sounds like, from treating all of these issues as military ones, but is it a broad approach of engagement and helping deal with governance issues? I mean, would that be, if you had to boil it all down, or, or what do you think about that? But the first necessity is re-engagement. The Obama administration was perceived throughout the region as disinterested and disengaged uh, in the issues of the Middle East. And we saw a number of reactions to that. Uh, it certainly was a green light to the Iranians to do whatever they wanted in Iraq, um, that they largely have. Uh, but also with our traditional allies. Uh, it wasn't much noted at the time, but the Saudis did something extraordinary for a diplomat of my generation. You know, the foundation of our post-World War II Middle East policies uh, lay in the, uh, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, which was essentially oil for security. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what... Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, did on the decks of a U.S. destroyer in Great Bitter Lake in February of 1945 in this historic meeting even so. 
uh, no, so that was a linchpin uh, for, for, for decades after. Uh, President Obama decided not so much, uh, referring to Saudi Arabia as our so-called ally, free rider. Um, uh, the Saudis reacted accordingly. Uh, the Yemen intervention, uh, the air war uh, against the Houthis, the Saudis didn't consult with us on that. They simply told us they were going in about 72 hours before they did. Wow. They, they did so because they needed some um, enablers, uh, but made it clear with or without our support, they're going to do this. Uh, that, again, unthinkable in uh, the decades of our historically close and important relationship with Saudi Arabia. So when President Obama did things like putting together that highly publicized lunch at the White House for Mohammed bin Salman, now the, uh, the crown prince, uh, it was a gesture that we valued our traditional relations and uh, wanted to move them forward. And then his trip did very much the same. When you look at our traditional allies, who are they in the region? Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Jordan, Turkey. Turkey is not a Middle Eastern state per se, but since it used to own most of it, um, they continue to be a major player. Uh, what was the state of our relations with those countries? As bad as it had been since the 73 war uh, uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, you know, King Abdullah of Jordan said in a press conference uh, um, that he was sad to say that he seemed to have more belief um, in the power and the capacity of the United States to change things for the better in the Middle East than the Obama administration had. Uh, so again, I, I think this this visit to most of those countries uh, was a very important signal. And you, you saw it in little things. I mean, for the first time ever, uh, Air Force One uh, departing Riyadh for Tel Aviv did not have to file a, a double flight plan. Oh, wow. Uh, they, in the past, they, they, they would uh, get Saudi clearance for a third country uh, routing, and then in the air, they would change that to, uh, to Tel Aviv. The Saudis this time uh, let us file directly for Tel Aviv. So, you know, these were things that could have been built on. Yeah. Sadly, this is an administration that is singularly lacking in capacity. Um, and we see it in the, um, the neutering of the State Department under Secretary Tillerson. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have the bandwidth or the bench to take that very important set of initial encounters and turn it into a, a serious and sustained policy. Because if we're going to go anywhere, that's what's got to happen. We consult with our traditional allies. We, we, we get their views. We take them back. We shape that into uh, a policy that we will lead and then start implementing. But uh, this administration only has the capacity to do the first. Uh, and I, I, I think the region is going to be very, very disappointed as 
uh, we fail to move into any kind of meaningful role. Because here, here's the thing, Justin. Uh, the post-World War II international order was largely designed and led by the United States. Um, and it worked pretty well. Uh, that changed under Obama, and I'm afraid Trump is going to continue it. That we are no longer going to be the world's policeman or referee. Uh, the problem is, if we don't step forward, others will in the region and beyond. And that's what we're seeing with China, with Russia and with the forces of radicalism and disorder in the region itself. Yeah, I mean, for all the, you know, concerns and issues with sort of American sort of dominance in that time period, I think things are, I think there's a lot of evidence that things are about to be quite uncertain um, and be kind of play out differently now that we're not playing that role of navigating those waters. And it seems like it, um, things could look a lot different. I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, we actually were talking about in our first class this week was sort of the upending of the post-World War II world order and what that might mean. And um, it strikes me that um, it's going to be different and quite concerning, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, well, Ryan, thanks. Uh, I know your time's quite valuable. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Is there any, do you have any social media website, any type of information I should share with the listeners so they can follow along things you're doing? Uh, well, since this is my first day in the office at Princeton, uh, I, I can't even find the doorknob, uh, <laughs> uh, let alone all those uh, heavy high-tech stuff. But, uh, I, will, I will get around to it. All right. Well, thanks again. I hope you enjoy your time up at Princeton, and I hope that we're uh, lucky enough to have you back here after your stay there. Thank you, Justin. This is a great initiative. Glad to be part of it. Thanks so much, Ryan. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Problems. These episodes can be found on iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, and Pocket Casts, along with on our YouTube channel at Public Problems. You can find these episodes on any of these mediums by simply searching for Public Problems. We also are maintaining a Facebook page. It's at Public Problems Podcast. Here we are sharing more information about the podcasts and having a little bit of a discussion on current topics. We'll also be hosting an event in January called Public Problems 101, a January review of the evidence. This will be a public classroom learning experience that you can participate in. Simply find the event on our Facebook page and click that you're interested in participating. More information on that will be forthcoming in the next couple of months. Thanks again for your time and we hope that you're enjoying the podcast. Have a nice day.